Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. My name is Jesse Vondracek. I am a professional triathlete and head coach at Top Step Training. You can find me on the social medias. You can just uh, type in Jesse Vondracek. I'm probably the only one out there because who else can spell that last name? My wife can't even. Um, I also have a few other people with me. We've got Marilyn. Marilyn, you want to give us a little intro on yourself? Hi, I'm Marilyn Chicoto with Marilyn Chicota Coaching. You can find me also on all the internets. That's hard to spell and hard to remember. So just put in mcc.coach and you can find everything on me. Good to be here, guys. And I'm Marilyn for a long time and I still can't spell it. Go ahead, Elliot. <laughs> I can't spell Marilyn or Chicota, but that's a more of a me problem. But um, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I misspell it every time. Um, I misspell- get lucky once in a while and spell it right. My name's Elliot Bassett, and I misspelled Elliot in kindergarten many times. Um, I, I have the papers to prove it, and I'm uh, at mountainendurance.com. Uh, Mountain Endurance Coaching um, is my company name, and yeah, I do all sorts of endurance coaching. Uh, a lot of people know me for triathlon, though, but biking and running, too. Anyways, good to chat with you guys today. Yeah, and we're here to uh, answer some questions, and today we are specifically answering a smattering of rapid-fire questions, uh, many of which were brought to us by different athletes. Some of them are questions we just had for each other, but this is going to be a little bit different form of a podcast today. Wait, where... I got one to start. Jesse, what is your middle name? <laughs> My middle name is Jesse. What is your middle name? James. There you go. Sorry, What's I'll your you go. first name, Jesse? <laughs> we can't give that out. Then people will find them. We keep, we keep some things you know, under the hat. What about Marilyn? Marilyn, what's your middle name? Oh, it's boring. It's Anne. 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 See? Complicated Marilyn Chicota. Simple middle Wait, name. Wait, we could have been calling you Mac this whole time? Yep. Oh, okay. Well, okay. <laughs> Big Mac daddy. No. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. I got us off the rails, Jesse. We're off. the. We haven't even started. We're off the rails. It's going to be a good day. Um, so yeah, rapid fire. I've got a bunch of questions written down. There's probably going to be some curveballs in here that nobody even knows about. Not even me. And, and yeah, so just make a little bit shorter, a little bit disjointed. And I think that hopefully there'll be some kind of various takeaways in here. You can kind of pull information from the answers to these questions throughout the whole thing and yeah so there's not going to be a, like a meat and potatoes today podcast gonna, dodgeball podcast dodgeball everything's gonna be flying at you really fast are you guys ready yep let's do this university right. of montana dodgeball champion here i got the trophies to prove it let's, <laughs> let's roll i i have slow reactions so i'm gonna get nailed in this oh session. man you're in trouble <laughs> you're in trouble all right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna start from from the middle and work my way to the outside just for fun here. Um, oh yikes! <laughs> I'm not good at dodgeball and I'm not good at curveballs. <laughs> Let's start with caffeine. Let's say, <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean it's a good way to start every day, right? Um, so every hour, uh, every hour, <laughs> I start every hour with too that would too much. Too much. <laughs> so question is, uh, if you are mega loaded with caffeine before your workouts are you then going to get less out of them and we can kind of answer that and then morph it into like maybe our thoughts on preloading with caffeine if we have a number or anything like that so 
Um, first question, and I'm just going to give Marilyn some time because I know she's moving in slow motion over there. Elliot, um, <laughs> thoughts on if you're going to get less out of your workouts because you are totally overloaded in caffeine. If I had my magic eight ball, it would turn over and say, uh, decidedly, no, you are not going to get less out of your workouts. Your, your workout is going to be just fine. Um, your main issue is, did you take so much caffeine that it's then going to compromise your sleep later in the day? What time did that happen? And that lack of sleep might take away, but the workout itself is probably going to be great. But if, uh, and so you're going to get the stress, but then did you take so much caffeine that it's going to bite you in the butt on the recovery? And that's the real question with taking too much caffeine is what I would say. Um, there's a, there's a reason that caffeine at high enough levels has been considered a performance enhancing drug. Um, there's also a reason that ca caffeine affects different people really differently, and it can help with fat oxidation and whatnot, um, which is a good thing but it can also mess with digestive issues, which is a bad thing. So everyone's kind of got their own level with caffeine. Um, and, and so you're going to have to figure that out. And so some people, when they hear this question, they're thinking one cup of espresso and another person's thinking 10, and that's a big difference. And, and that one in that 10 could have the exact same reaction for the, for each person. Um, so yeah, it's worth playing around with because it is a positive oftentimes, especially for racing, but those drawbacks of the lack of sleep or the bad digestive issues are real. Yeah. I, uh, I would say the only times I've seen caffeine be a negative is exactly what you said. If you get, I mean, some people's stomachs just go absolutely South from caffeine. So you got to watch for that. The only other negative that I've seen from caffeine in certain workouts is if it really jacks someone's heart rate and, you know, if they go into a workout and their heart rate is running much higher than it normally would, it can all of a sudden they're, you know, running at a slower pace or, you know, producing a whole lot less Watts and their heart rate is way higher. And that the workout just sort of tanks because all of that is so amiss. So, you know, if you, if you overdo it a little bit and you get you know, a bit of an off stomach, your heart rate's running really high and you just end up not being able to hit that high intensity that you're after, that because you you've overdone the caffeine I've, I've seen that a time or two to be honest i did it myself once i tried this one brand that was i don't know it was had a and i drink a lot of coffee and i was standing on a time trial ramp at a race way over caffeinated and my heart rate was near max in the start ramp and i was like oh boy there's not a lot of room to go up from here <laughs> and i absolutely tanked that time trial because you know i wasn't even moving and my heart rate was like way up around threshold between nerves being rested and then being jacked on caffeine i was like oh god i'm screwed and i really was so um but for the most part i would say caffeine is going to be a plus you know we're pretty tired and and getting a little boost and like you said elliot it's it's a performance it can be up to a performance enhancing so just if you get to that point it's like appropriately caffeinated or over caffeinated that over caffeinated can be a bit of an issue. The first triathlon I did where I, I took caffeine beforehand at this time, I took like no caffeine in my life. I was going through the entire swim, literally thinking I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming. And I was like, I am going to crush this so hard. And, and then I, you did tanked. <laughs> I did not cry. Yeah. I missed uh, a golden opportunity to go one, two with, uh, this was the summer I was living with Ben Hoffman out of a van and we had one chance to go one, two that year. And that was that race. And I blew it and I got third and I blame it on the caffeine. So not really. It was because second was better than me. Shout out Steve Kilshaw. He's still a racing pro. Um, yeah, I agree with everything you guys said. I also think that the, the source of that 
caffeine can be pretty important. Like I can drink a ton of coffee and be fine. Um, usually I have some sort of food while I'm drinking my coffee. And I think that is part of the reason if I take caffeine pills with on like an empty stomach or with no food, they really mess with me. And I don't know if they just get in my system faster or something, but I can't handle that. So I think being willing to potentially try different things as far as how you get your caffeine might be a good way to, if you're having, having issues. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so if I do like a, a similar amount to a cup of coffee with caffeine pills, I'll get really jittery and it'll make my workouts go poorly because like, I can't focus brains going crazy. And, uh, and then I just kind of crash and have a really bad workout. Whereas if I drink some coffee or that's a fair point, right? I mean, like you, it's hard. It's, it's like work to drink too much coffee. You know what I mean? Like you would have to drink all your stomach would hurt before you drink too much coffee. But if you took like five Viverin tablets, holy crap, you would be <laughs> absolutely flying. And that would be pretty easy to do. So yeah, I mean, if we're just talking about caffeine in general. Uh, it's probably good to clarify. Are we talking about cups of coffee? Or are we talking about, you know, pre-workout type stuff? Are we talking about tablets? So really understanding how many milligrams are in each and the source. And I think that's a pretty important piece of this conversation. And yeah, I do think having sugar with it too. I don't know. Like that's, I've, I've had success by telling athletes to do the same thing. Like, you know, don't get a sugar-free Red Bull. Like if you're going to have caffeine pills, take them like with a gel or something. So you're kind of like having something else in there. Um, sorry, Elliot, I cut you off though. Oh, I was just going to say, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, if I have two cups of coffee, I'm off the rails and everything feels terrible. You're not alone. There's definitely people out there like that. I'm one of them. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know for a lot of people who've been having caffeine their whole life, you guys are the more common scenario. So I think that's all good advice. Um, if you're getting, if you're feeling sick off two cups of coffee, keep practicing, just keep, 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 keep practicing, man. Keep going. <laughs> I, no one, one is good. Um, and yeah, I, I know we got to move on. This is in theory, rapid fire, but uh, last thing I just want to add that is like, once you start, that's the thing you got to be careful of. If you have a longer workout, you might need to, um, to re up at some point or else uh, you, you might run out of that, that happy feeling On to the next one. Yep. Rapid fire. We All right. Talk for a while on that one. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So, ball. Boom. Boom. I iron man running. Uh, how do you, structure your long runs for, for, for an Ironman, especially like thinking about pace. They want to run the race versus the pace they're training their like Ironman specific longer runs at. So I would say that most athletes, like all the amateur athletes that I coach, they tend to run too fast for their long runs with Ironman specific work. And they're not staying true to actual Ironman pace. And so it's really important to make sure that you, you clarify exactly what that's, that's going to be because they, the, the tendency or the most common mistake is that they're doing that pace work just as more at like a true marathon pace versus actual Ironman specific run pacing, which I do think is important to train because it's usually a different gait. And 
that little bit different gait really beats your body up quite a bit more. So if you've never trained it, trained it, then you get halfway through the Ironman marathon and you're, you know, your joints are really hurt and your muscles are breaking down. And that's ultimately what slows people down in Ironmans, right? The faster athletes like professional level and the faster amateur athletes that are really boogieing along, it's tough to do too much of that work without burning them out. You've got to be, you've got to be careful how much of that you place in their program, because that's going to take a lot out of you in general. It doesn't, it wouldn't take much like for someone like you, Jesse, to be, to run 18 miles in, you know, two hours. Right. So if you're putting pace work in that, all of a sudden you've got someone in, you know, cranking out pretty long runs, pretty fast. That's going to take a lot out of them. You want to be really careful how much actual Ironman pace work you put in their long runs in their build so that they don't get cooked from it. So that's the, the, the main points I would take away from that versus amateur versus the fast, you know, pro athletes, how some things that you can think about with that. I, I think to put it like succinctly in my perf- opinion, very few people can do an Ironman run the whole way at their easy run pace. Very few. And I think there's a ton of people out there who like are truly going whatever zone two, if you will, at let's say 730 pace. There's not a lot of people doing an Ironman run at 730 pace. There's very few people. Um, and if you can, if you can pull that off and you're trying to go 720 pace, there's like not that much different in that, in that cadence. Now, if you're trying to go seven minute pace, then to Maryland's point for those faster folks, we're, we're getting somewhere, but that's a, whatever that is like a 302, 303. Um, so that's almost nobody. Right. Um, so I think the biggest thing you hear is, Oh, you know, like before we got on, um, I was making fun of people who want to do hard four hundreds on the track to get ready to run a, a three fifty. Um, Ironman, do your long run, fuel your long run. Well, you know, um, maybe take some practice, taking caffeine on your long run, um, and, and, and make sure your recovery post long run is good and put your focus into those, uh, longer runs. So I would say that's, that's the short of it. And obviously if you're going, if the faster you're going a little more complex, it gets, but I think, um, just keep getting your long run up and nail your feeling on your long run. So do you think there's any benefit to making those runs a little bit faster than your goal pace? Like, um, or do you think they should be like at whatever your goal pace is? Well, I think for most people, they already are faster because their goal pace is slower than their easy run pace. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so what it's if, like, I guess... like, are you saying like for those people who are faster? Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree. I guess, um, I like 95% of the people in our 98% of the people, their long run is faster than their, their race pace. So we're only talking out like one out of 50 people. Um, yeah, for, for those people, yes, you're going to want to do some running at race pace, but then I'm probably going to spend more time of them just like running at threshold, which is just like a general fitness booster. And then I would do a couple of workouts at race pace, but I'm talking like two or three, but that's exactly what Marilyn was saying, like to make sure you're used to that cadence and that style. And they might be pretty long run. Like they might, you know, might be 13, 14, 15 miles at that pace. But let's say we're talking about someone trying to run a three hour Ironman, like you were forever, Jesse, um, off the bike, not regularly. And, um, yeah, th- then you'd spend some time running at 650 pace right. Or whatever, 645 pace to kind of like get used to that. But that's very few people, right. When you were trying to do that, you were still finishing top 10 Ironmans all the time. So, um, 
that right there is whatever, you know, 0.05% of the race course. What do you so, think, Jesse? Um, Jesse's deep in thought, ready to ridicule me, and I'm I'm ready to take it. No, I've got one one more side question, I guess, to that. Do you think that the people that are doing their long runs that are probably going to be running a little bit slower than like, you know, say they're doing their long runs at 730, they're going to be closer to like 830. So you, do you guys see a benefit in them practicing that 830 pace more often than what their long run is currently at? Personally, not really, but I would then question, is the 730 too fast? Is that actually not easy? And then you'd like get into are they running their long runs too fast? And then that might be a question. Um, but I think ultimately the, the, an Ironman is so darn long, you might be running eight minute pace and you end up averaging eight 30, but you walk through every aid station. Um, and I think that could, that could be how you end up at eight 30 pace with a eight minute actual run pace, if that makes sense, especially if it's like a super hot race, right? Cause then yeah, yeah. everybody finds a way to slow down and you might have eight minute fitness, which is three 30, but you end up running eight 30, um, for, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I, I definitely, I do a variety with like in those types of paces in particular, I think it's worth, it's absolutely worth people dialing in their exact pace and what that's going to feel like and what the breakdown is. So they're doing a two hour run and you do, you know, 60 minutes of that two hour run at their exact Ironman marathon pace. But I absolutely have most of my athletes do somewhere between a 90 minute and a two hour run where we might do two by 25 minutes at, you know, say they're going to run that eight 30, even nine minute mile pace in their Ironman, but will they have the ability to run eight minute pace and stay at sort of a tempo zone. Like I know you love the word tempo, but let's say zone three where they're not cracking into that, you know, they're lack, they're not starting to get into threshold. So we might do a lot of work at that rate before they tip over that, that point. So let's say it's, they do a 90 minute run. They do two by 25 minutes at eight minute pace with a little recovery in between, but it's highly likely that their actual Ironman marathon pace is going to be right around nine minute pace. So I put plenty of those kinds of workouts in. It's not there. They're, um, when they're at the point where they're doing that, that's not their only long run of the week though. So they might be doing like a two hour, two and a half hour run that's hilly and long at much slower pace. And then that might be a secondary medium type long run. Nice. Um, yeah. One thing I also like to do is, is have like, you know, some, some work maybe in that like tempo threshold range in the beginning of a longer run and then ending it with some Ironman pace. So you're kind of trying to build a little more fatigue and then say, okay, now let's try and hold, you know, whatever that Ironman goal pace is on some actual tired legs and try and try and understand what that's going to feel like. Um, I will safely say you can never quite understand until you get there, but trying to trying to simulate that as much as you can. And, and I do think the hard thing with nailing down that pace is all the variables that we've talked about. It's like, well, do you want to run average eight thirties, but you're planning on walking the aid stations, you're going to have some pace variability in there and some things like that, where I think at the end of the day, it's definitely good for every athlete to have a little bit of a gearbox. Um, I'm sorry, tricats to use that word again. Um, but yeah, to have a little bit of a gearbox so that they can change paces throughout the, the course of the race as they need to. 
And the other thing is to remember with Ironmans, almost nobody negative splits or holds their pace in an Ironman. I mean, that's just not, not something you see very often. I'm not saying it's not possible or that I've never seen it, but for the most part, people have some kind of fade, especially in that last 12 kilometers of an Ironman, because we're not talking about just a marathon. We're talking about a really, really long day out there. And so allowing for that little bit of range is, I, I, I definitely think is important. Dodgeball. All right. Time's up. On to the next Dodgeball. One. That's the, that's the, that's the key word. Dodgeball. All right. Dodgeball. <laughs> All right. I have a few tool questions that I've, I've had some conversations with athletes recently. So, so tool number one, tempo trainer, and I'm going to apply the tempo trainer to both running or swimming. So, you know, slightly different, but you can interchangeable as far as like what they're used for. And just to be clear, when we talked about this earlier, all I am visualizing is those old school tempo metronomes, metronomes sitting on the top of big old piano going like tick, 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 tick. That's what I'm picturing. <laughs> so I have, I'm going to, let's focus on the swim for a second here. Have you ever used them? Have you used them for stroke rate or have you used them for pacing as in like they click when you're supposed to hit the wall? Both. Marilyn? I have not used them for pacing, but I have used them for stroke rate for certain athletes who have the, you know, struggling to, to feel that. How about Jesse? You? Neither. Like never. That's fine. I I'm not the hugest fan of them. I, and I'm the one who used them for both. So I, I, I just like, I understand the stroke rate, right. Um, <clears throat> if you're lucky enough to be on deck with somebody, you know, you can kind of count that. Um, if you're us based and you're in a 25 yard pool, like it's a huge pain in the butt to have something just beeping in your ear and you do a flip turn and somehow it's supposed to like match up with your stroke rate. And I just think it doesn't really work well in a 25 yard pool. If you're in a 50 meter pool, I would say you, you can take like a, a weird stroke and then kind of get on that stroke if you will. Um, but I still think like your mental cues of you, internalizing, trying to have a faster stroke and then having somebody like counting for you to see if you actually made a change, um, might be a better way to go about that. I think a tempo trainer in open water could possibly be a useful tool, but that's a, that's a stretch for most people to get to, to functionally actually use that. Um, and then for the pacing stuff, like if you want to go on the 123 instead of the 125 or the 120, um, I do think that's kind of interesting. And I do like that idea for you're like, I really want X, Y, Z rest or whatever. Or somebody's like trying to, to get more comfortable at a certain pace with slightly less rest. I, I think that idea is interesting, but that in that case, then it just beeps every, you know, like you hit the wall and you know, it's going to beep 10 seconds later, give or take. Um, so I'm fine with that. They also make clocks where you could do the same thing where you set the clock and then it's a countdown timer. So like, why wouldn't you just use that? I don't know. Wait, so, they make clocks, <laughs> you know, they make clocks that do the same function where you can set it to the one twenty three, and it'll count down. And then you look at it and it's at zero again, and then you go again, again, again. Um, so yeah, is it's there a whatever. specific reason you don't have never, is it, do you have like something that you're like, this is a negative tool, Jesse? Is there, uh, what's your... I, I just have visions of every swim coach I've ever had, like, knocking it out of my hand and yelling at me for like ever bringing that on deck. 
I feel like as, as a swimmer um, with potentially a lot of old school coaches, that was just never something that was like, would, it would have been allowed. What was their reasoning for that? Um, you know, I was scared. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you didn't ask, <laughs> but, uh, but I just think, go, sorry, no, go, go, go. I do think that it's much like run cadence. It's so there, there's a little bit of variability there. And I think it is good to have some variability, you know, for, especially for open water swimming. So like people really trying to focus on locking in on one specific stroke rate, I don't know if that's like the right thing to spending your energy on. You know, I think it's a, it could be a good tool if you're like, Hey, you're trying to fix this in order to fix this, you need to have a slightly longer stroke. So we're going to use this to help you in this instance, but it's not the end result isn't getting to, you know, whatever it is like, um, extra rate, the X result is, or the end goal is trying to fix your stroke. And this is like a means to that end. I see it being useful there. And I do see it being useful for, for pacing initially I was like, well, you want to learn RPE and like, know what you're doing. But I say that. And I think about all the times when I'm swimming and glance at the clock and I'm like, well, I am, I'm doing that exact same thing just by lifting my head. So I think that it can help ingrain that RPE for, for people that are not like kind of don't have a ton of experience in the water because that's a really hard thing to do. Right. I feel like in general, most people start out pretty hard in the pool and then end up pulling a Frankie fizzle fade. So to try and avoid that, you know, try learning how to start out a little bit easier, having a tempo trainer, could be a good, a good guide for that way to throw a three-year-old under the bus <laughs> or myself. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, Jesse's daughter is, uh, let's just say Frankie is may or may not be her name. And sometimes she gets tired. I think one thing that bothers me about tempo trainers is that it takes your focus away from your stroke. And, and so like, like you're saying, um, that kind of bothers me. Um, and then the pacing thing, like kind of same thing, like, you know, you can have a clock or you could have a clock on a wall, but I mean, ultimately you're just talking about a different, a unique send off. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, or it's just, we, it's say you're doing like an 800 and you're like, okay, I want to sit on one eighteens. So you can use that to say, if sure. It before you get to the wall, you're like, oh, I went out a little too hard. So you can kind of use that as like a, an adjustment instead of like having to stop and look at the clock. I think yeah, one that, of the important things to address in this conversation that we're all talking like we assume, which is the wrong assumption based on my experience that all of these people swimming are using a pace clock. <laughs> right? And that they know how to use a pace clock. So most athletes I know that it, that's really helped where it's helped them with this stuff is one. And, and the reason I emphasize that is because all three of us think the same thing, like, good Lord, please use to learn a pace clock. I have drilled that. I say that over and over and over again, and everyone just uses their Garmin and then they download the file afterwards. And you know, all of the things that you're saying are so good and so true, but they come from a place of pure swimming background of like, oh yeah, it's just an assumption. We all use a pace clock, right? I mean, we know how to use a pace clock. We know how to glance over at a pace clock. We know what that means. We know what it feels like. But for most athletes now, they're really reliant on putting their garment on their wrist. And I mean, even old school, you got that tempo trainer kicked out of your hand on the 
pool deck. Imagine if you showed up with a watch on your wrist at swim practice, heck no. Right. I mean, that thing got ripped off and thrown over the fence. So the, the one thing to think about if for their listeners is start with learning to use a pace clock. I mean, I'm just, I'm going to be, I'm going to say that like a hundred times. And I say it to my athletes all the time and all of them still use their garments and download the files and all that. And I just keep saying, use the pace clock and write out your splits for your main set, because that's how you develop all of these things that you're talking about that are so important. Right. And so I think when we start to talk about things like tempo trainers, they become more important for beginners that just absolutely refuse to learn the basics of you know, the basic fundamentals of good swimming, which is start with learn to use a pace clock, try to I learn how, you know, the, those kinds of things. You, I assumed that the only people who would use tempo trainers already a hundred percent use pace clocks, right? See, that's what I was saying is we were having this conversation with, no, with the, I was, there's no, I would never have somebody who uses their watch, use a tempo trainer though. And I'm fine with people. I think, uh, personally, like there's tons of people who use their watch then I'm totally fine with it. And it's not bothered. I'm not bothered by it, but there's a lot of people who don't have access to like reasonable swim coaching or reasonable swim groups. So in that case, it doesn't really matter to me if they use their watch or their clock. That's just me personally. Um, and if so you're using that, their watch as if it's a pace clock, like a digital pace clock, that's fine. But it's a lot of people don't even know how to do that. Like they have no idea. They're just swimming. You know what I mean? Sure. But if they're focused on swimming, I guess is my, like, I just want people to be focused on swimming. And I think the one thing a tempo trainer does is add another thing. And if you already are having enough trouble or you're putting enough mental energy into the swimming, I'd prefer them to just keep focusing on swimming. I guess the grand scheme of things, I'm not that big a fan of a tempo trainer. If it just, I, I think like that's, that's the, my takeaway of like, I understand how they're useful and there are a handful of people where I would consider using them. Um, but I think it's a pretty advanced tool. And I think a lot of people think they're advanced and they're not as advanced as they think they are. So Dodgeball. I guess that that's my, that's my personal. Dodgeball. Dodgeball. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let's move on. Elliot, All right. We're on like question number three of nine. So I don't, we're never going to make it. We are <laughs> rabbit fighters, not our strength. We're finding that out now. All right. My next tool I've had a lot of questions on is, uh, floaty pants to simulate wetsuit swimming. Or buoyancy shorts, if you want to, uh, you know, use their correct name. Do you, are they allowed to just swim in a wetsuit? Sure. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but buyancy pants in particular, yeah, right? I, I, yeah. As a, as a training tool, right? Yeah. Cause it's I mean, let's say you don't want to wear a wetsuit in the pool. Somebody. Yeah. I, th I think like if they know that they're never going to race without a wetsuit, sure. But do, if do you not, think they, hmm? so question being, do you think they're like a good simulation for swimming with a wetsuit? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, cause most wetsuit companies have like the most thickness, like kind of around your core and your le like your upper leg, the thickest neoprene, right. And your shoulder, you know, your shoulders and your arms are usually quite light. Um, so in general, you would float pretty darn similar. So I think that's valid for sure. Especially if you can't get to open water, open water is not warm enough, et cetera. I don't have any issues with people trying to get used to that body position, especially if they're going to be swimming in a wetsuit, right? If you're swimming in a wetsuit in a race, you want to get used to that position, used to that stroke pattern. That makes perfect sense. And floaty pants can do that. But I also think a lot of people 
use floaty pants and say, I often swim in a wetsuit and then there's a non-wetsuit swim and they freak out. And I think like somebody who can swim without a wetsuit can swim with one and somebody who can only swim with a wetsuit has a problem. Um, and so like, yeah, they're a very good tool and there's a time to use them, but at the same time, if you're using them every day, you just better. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. I think they're a good, I think they're a good tool for people who struggle to establish a good body position and they're trying to learn it. That could be a good tool, maybe on their easy swims. It also could be a good tool just for long aerobic swims. If someone's really tired, you know, as triathletes, our legs get pretty smoked and maybe you don't want to use a boy. And so you can throw on those pants and it's going to take the legs out of it a little bit, a little, keep your body position good in the water. And that can be a good place to, to use them. Yeah. Uh, one thing I agree with both you on, and I think might kind of summarize this is that it is not, it should not be considered an everyday tool. It could be used for specific instances, like establishing a body position. If you're really tired and just doing a recovery swim, if you're getting ready for a wetsuit swim, but if you're like, ah, oh, these make my body position better and I don't have to work for it. So I'm going to swim in these all the time. Then it's kind of a crutch and that's not, that's not what I think they're intended for. Agreed. Dodgeball. Dodgeball. Um, key session to be strong on the bike over a fairly long amount of time. You got one, you got to pick one. Am I going first? Uh, oh, you yeah. look ready. You've got that ready look in your eye. Long ride. Preferably easy. I'm done. That's it. Dodgeball. Dodgeball. I get to say it too, you, right? Not just you guys. <laughs> well, you got to wait till we're all done before you say it. <laughs> you can say it. Well, I'll go like this when it's time. Okay. <laughs> Elliot, Elliot's got the words, but the timing's a little off. That's okay. You'll get there. Um, I would say strength endurance reps. That's probably from beginner all the way to intermediate, advanced, year round over 10 year span, 20 year span, that's probably the one session you could throw in every week for your entire cycling career and continue to get stronger or maintain strength to be a good cyclist. Do you want to give an example? Simple as could be is six by five minutes at 50 to 60 RPM in your time trial position or on a climb seated and at somewhere between 80 and hundred and five percent, depending on how hard you're going to go. So if it's a little easier session might be that zone three for 80 and um, 105% of threshold. F, yeah. Of threshold. So let's say hundred percent is FTP. If you're going to do them a little harder, you might be in that 95 to 105% range. You're going to do them a little easier, 80, 80, 90%. You're still going to get a lot out of that kind of work. So that would be my go-to session. That's going to keep you a good cyclist for a long period of time. I'm only allowed to choose one. So I think you're wrong, but I'm glad somebody said that. Man, for the go-to, I was going to go five by five just because it's easier to remember, but oh. six, that's, it's different. Um, six yeah. by five is clearly superior. <laughs> well, yeah, it's five more minutes. <laughs> Maybe I should go seven by five. I don't know. Don't seven push by it, seven. Man. <laughs> you don't no. agree that's a key session, Elliot? No, I was being serious. I I'm only allowed to choose one. So I choose long, easy ride, but oh, gotcha, gotcha. I, I, I fully see the validity in your answer. Yes. Oh, okay. So, gotcha. Yeah. I do think it's a, yeah. I think if, if everyone had a Mount lemon, then 
a Mount Lemon is a, a pretty good one for for like just good. ride up it. You mean just ride or, up or it. for or for Maryland's? Oh, okay, I I got you. No, no, yeah, I mean just do a lot of climbing. I think that's that's a great way too. Is like take that long easy ride and take Maryland's workout and kind of meld them into one where you're like, hey, you're probably forced to ride a little lower cadence than you want to because you're going to try and gain a bunch of vertical in a long ride. I literally named my company after that idea. Mountain there we go. Endurance. Two words. Dodgeball. Did I do it right now? Yeah. Perfect. Good job. Perfect. 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 <laughs> All right. Next up. Let's say, you know, you're sitting at your computer and you get an email or a phone call from an athlete. What are the things you look for to say, hey, this is going to be a good fit. I, I like the I like the way this is melding. Or hey, maybe. Maybe I should see what Elliot's doing right now. <laughs> Does that mean I have to go first? Uh, I don't know. Maryland, Maryland looks ready for this one. Elliot's laughing, so we'll we'll slide it that way. I would say I can tell pretty quickly if someone's going to be a good fit with me based on their alignment of their goals and their life. If those their expectations and their life are in line with the goals that they have, then I've, I've got a lot to work with there. And I think that that's probably the number one thing that I look for. It's also the number one thing that I look for as a, it's likely not going to work if they start rattling off um, goals that are, and then I start asking about their life and they're completely out of line with one another. I'm probably not the best coach for them. And, and we're going to run into roadblocks pretty quickly. So that's, do, that do would you be just my... mean like where like someone says, I want to win Ironman Hawaii, but they don't have a pro card. Kind or let's like, say they, like, someone uh, says, like I want to do an Ironman and I only have three hours a week to train. I've got five kids. I work 80 hours a week. I drink every sure. night. I eat cheeseburgers every day, but I want to, I want to go to Kona. And I'm going to say, you know, unless they're willing to completely change all of that, that their expectations and goals aren't in line with the way their life currently runs. And we're, we're probably not going to be a very good match for one another. Now, but on the other hand, fair, I what's that? that? I said, to be fair, that athletes arteries are doing an Ironman every day. So it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I see your point though. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yep. Elliot. Um, I usually don't, I, I always schedule a call and talk people's ears off and try to listen as much as I can, because I feel like I'm not a very good judge of just like reading through something. What Marilyn said, I said, think is probably the only thing if somebody says like, I like every once in a while you say somebody says, I want to like win these kinds of races and they clearly have like no idea what they're in for, like in the slightest. Um, that's the only thing that really stands out as like a red flag. But then the other stuff is just like, you kind of have to like, I kind of have to listen to them and, and see their whole setup. Um, and then, and then see how we meld and see how malleable they are. I like to think I'm, I'm pretty adjustable to every person's things, but some people are just like really hard set on something they have to do. Um, and sometimes that's, that works with what I think might work. And sometimes it doesn't. And so often that stuff comes out in the conversation and I can't really give you a set example because it would depend on what their goal is and what they're like, kind of how Marilyn said, like, does their life give them the opportunity to do what's needed? Um, <clears throat> so it's hard to name this specific thing, but I guess I'm essentially saying uh, Marilyn's answer. So, yeah. Yeah, I I look I make sure they can handle a little bit of sarcasm. And if not, it's probably not gonna work. That's uh that's fair with all of us, I think. <laughs> <laughs> 
Got yes. thick skin, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this this will work. We're good. We're good. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I guess to to try and go with a different answer here, I I would say that like the willingness and ability to communicate effectively is is one thing that's pretty important to me, and if that's that's kind of a, a non negotiable non negotiable. That's a good point. My opening like email I'll send to people basically says like, are you open to it? Like you've got to tell me the truth on things. Like there's personal stuff you don't have to tell me. Right. Um, but if you're just going to lie about what your goals are or, you know, like that's not going to work because I can't get you to do X if you actually want to do Y. Um, and I can't get you to do X if you, you know, if you, you tell me we're working with ABC to get there, but that's just not true. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, a lot of times, like, I don't care if, if people, there's an unforeseen thing that they're, you know, not aware of, but it's just straight up when they're just not telling you the truth. Dodgeball. Dodgeball. Move um, on. All right. I'm, I'm tossing this one for Elliot. He was really psyched on this one. So injuries that can really affect your ability to maintain consistency that might not actually be like you know, broken bones, things like that. What are minor injuries that you want to help people with here that. Oh, when we were talking about just like, I mean, I guess just general, uh, Not tendon, Elliot, ligament, bone kind of your thing. answer is saddle sores just to give you a heads up here. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was so confused. Yeah. Saddle sores. They're not your fault, but they might be. Um, I think unfortunately there's a group of people out there who are going to get saddle sores no matter what they do. Um, and then there's a group of people who can more or less avoid saddle sores if they do everything right. Um, so yeah, I think most people probably need to hear this. If no one's ever told them wear your bike shorts once clean them, that's uh, non-negotiable unless you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and even then, if you can like at least get some water on them and rinse them out and dry them off, that'd go a pretty long ways. Um, take a shower and wash you're downtown. Well, after you do bike rides, um, use soap scrub. And <clears throat> if you do get a saddle sore, clean that stuff up with, uh, some alcohol. Usually you want to lance it and then get some Neosporin on it. Um, Jesse, you're making faces like you've never heard people do this, but I mean, well, I was just, first of all, like, are we, what are we talking about? Like whiskey, tequila, rum, what do you got? No, rubbing alcohol. Oh, all right. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. What did you, did it come off? Like I was talking, sorry. <laughs> I'm talking about like staying sterile. Um, and, and I think this stuff is important and, and some people do get saddle sores quite a lot. And, you know, like I've had certain athletes and like, they're doing all of these things. And unfortunately, like, it's just like, how is the, you know, your, how does your hamstring go into your, your glute? Um, and that's not something you really have control over, but you do have control over bike shorts. Um, if you want to put on chamois cream, how well your saddle fits, you know, your bike position and then keeping your shorts clean and keeping your body clean as best you can. And that's not always going to do it. Um, but that does it for a lot of people. And then when you do get them taking care of them, like really quickly and properly, which involves disinfectant and antibiotic cream or whatever you call it, you know, sporin triple antibiotic cream. Yeah. Actually, you know what? The biggest trick I've used for uh, really bad saddle sores that heals them up really quickly is get a uh, diaper rash cream. So like zinc oxide, go, go to the diaper rash section where there, it makes sure it has zinc oxide in it. And like you say, scrub it really clean with um, even like a betadine soap 
or peroxide soap and in the shower and then put zinc, just diaper rash cream on and, and that clears them up pretty fast. There you go. And I never even heard of that one. Yeah. I like any sort of cream that has like an anti-inflammatory built in. Um, you mean for while you're riding or for post? No, but if you get a saddle sore, like any sort of oh, yeah, yeah. cream you can put on there afterwards. Um, like if it's really bad and you need to get the swelling down, you like a little preparation H on there after you do some of the, um, the antibiotic stuff can actually really help with that too. Um, but I think. All right. It, I'm, I'm learning stuff. I hadn't heard of preparation H on your saddle sore, but that's good to know. I think the biggest thing is that the controllable is like, like Elliot said, is like obviously being clean, but like really saying, Oh, like this kind of chamois doesn't work for me and being willing to experiment. I know chamois are expensive, but if you're getting a saddle sore from the way it's shaped, like you just need to change it. Same with your saddle. And that's yeah. going to probably change over time. You know, your, your grundle is going to stay the exact same shape. So being willing to change, change saddles or, or whatnot. And like bib shorts and where the seams are like for a lot of ladies, a lot of ladies like to wear just the shorts that are not bibs. But if you're struggling with saddle sores, I recommend bib shorts and really pay attention to where those seams are in the set in the chamois. And that's going to help you as far as uh, the ladies go out there. And there's nicer and nicer bib shorts. There's a few that uh, Erica has that like you can pull down so you can go pee mid ride and it's not yeah. a huge pain. And that they fit um, well and all of those things, you know, they don't want to sure. be big baggy shorts or anything like that, or even just a little bit baggy when they get sweaty, you want to make sure that they fit really snug and well, and that's going to help you out as well. Yeah. Decrease friction. Dodgeball. 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 Uh, all right. Last, last one I think we're going to have time for is another kind of question from an athlete and it is concerning shoes and if you guys think it's a good thing or a bad thing to always run in the same shoe and or run in different shoes for different activities you good mean like question. different different speeds or different terrain uh or do you like mean like like playing do dodgeball wear... going dancing that's I was like bowling Sorry. shoes. You mean different? Yeah. You mean like, are you going to do track work in your fastest shoes? And then you're going to have a shoe for tempo runs, shoe for long run and a shoe for trail run, et cetera. Yes. Marilyn. Oh, I'm up. Oh. Um, well, I would say for younger athletes, there's not as much risk in having some racing flats and, um, you know, your training shoe and, making sure that they're fairly similar, at least in, in drop. That's the big thing, drop and support. Those are the main things that are going to affect people and that you can run for the, uh, you know, if you're training for an Ironman, you want to know that you can run a long time in those racing flats. If you're, if you're going to choose to do that, if you're older and, you know, I, I really, really think at the older you get any little changes, you can get injury. So I would say cycle through shoes, but oh, they should be the exact same support and the exact same uh, drop on every single one. Of those. So if you've got a trail running shoe, you've got a speed shoe and you've got, you know, your long run shoe, they can be different, but they should have the exact same drop and the exact same amount of support in all of them. The older you get for the younger athletes, you can play around with that variability just a tiny bit, but really, really be sure that you can do you know, the, the duration of what you're going to be racing in that shoe successfully without your calves tying up or, you know, any, any problems like that. I'm going to uh, differ with Maryland slightly. And then I think that if you can 
run in shoes that have different drops than you should. If And I think if you get to a point and you can't, like, yeah, it's definitely not worth getting injured over. But if you've been doing it for your, your career and you can continue to do that as you get older, I think it can help um, help keep your feet and ankles strong. So I would recommend if you can do that, I think you should. And like, when I'm not talking like go from zero drop to 15 mils, but if you can have a few mil difference in some of your shoes, I think that that can be really good. I, but yeah, it's obviously not worth getting injured over. Yeah. I like a variety of shoes for everyone, but I don't like a variety of drop. I think all personally, I don't care who you are. I probably would prefer you to be in two mil less drop. Like if you're in 15, I'd rather you be in 12. If you're in 12, I'd rather you be in 10. Um, but I don't plan on that, like changing more than every six months or a year at most. Um, obviously the fast shoes, almost all of them have some sort of drop. That's quite significant. So I, I'm wary of people running in their carbon plated shoes too much. I'm not against them training in them at all, but I am, uh, wondering if there's going to be some people have already seen this happen. I'm not going to like name company names, but some athletes who've had access to carbon soles or sorry, whatever you want to call them, carbon plated shoes that had a substantial drop. And then they have kind of this, you know, you you've seen people run in them, they uh, land and then it's like a weird footfall. And a lot of people started getting Achilles issues. And I don't know if that's directly like, is that chance or is that directly related? I don't know, but I do know um, that having a healthy Achilles is pretty important. And if you mess around with like too high of a drop for too long, that's not a great thing for your Achilles. That said, some people have been in them too long, so long that like, you can't really change it too much. Um, so I'm, I'm also wary of people who have been in 15 mil drop shoes their whole life saying they're going to go to zero. Like that's insanity. I'd much rather you just stay in the 15. Um, so small changes, whatever you're going to do. But I do think like in terms of like the footing, like if it's a trail shoe or road shoe, or maybe a little bit lighter, like a little less cushion, a little more cushion. I think as long as it's like ballpark, I'm pretty comfortable with, with people switching stuff up. Um, even if they are a bit older, every different person is going to be a little different, but that's my general thought. This is sort of a random question. Maybe you guys don't even know the answer to this. Um, and I don't pronounce this correctly. So help me out here. You know, athletes who have like really bad, it's, um, is it lumbar, you know, where lumbar Lord, lordosis. Thank you. Yeah. I can't say that word. So it's basically I, like, I saw you doing the hand thing. That's yeah, lordosis. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, and then they usually have a pretty tight posterior chain and, um, I tend to get those athletes, obviously you do a lot of corrective work for that because it's cause issues, causes issues with injury and running. But would you recommend shoes like a specific drop on a shoe for that type of athlete for preventing injuries? I guess no, because I, I still think like the effect it would have on Achilles, like personally, I would think, okay, for this person whose butt sticks out and their stomach sticks out, aka me. Um, so you're not alone if you're listening to this. You know, like you would want a lower drop shoe, but there is a really like the, when everybody switched to like bare, when barefoot running was a craze, there's the reason everybody got hurt. It's because they all moved way too fast. Like you can only drop a couple mils at a time and it takes months to get used to it. Um, especially if your walk around shoes have a high drop. So like, unless you're walking around the house barefoot all of the time, you're not just going to drop four mils off and expect to walk away 
without some issues. Um, so I think that's pretty important, but I do think like generally speaking, the lower, the better, but I also, in spite of all that and having like ran barefoot in college way before that was a thing, you know, three times a week, I was out on the field running barefoot. Um, I'm totally fine with people just like settling in at four for life. I don't think you have to be at zero, right? Like four mils is not a, is not a big deal in my perspective. And I don't think it's going to cause any long-term Achilles issues. I have nothing to back this up with other than like anecdotal evidence, but that's just kind of my, my general thought. And a lot of shoes come in like four and five mils. And so you get a lot more variety than if you're stuck with a zero mil shoe. I think that's kind of like shoehorning you and you might have more issues from not having enough shoe options. Yeah, I think in general, you're probably going to start out with a higher drop um, if, if that's the situation you're in and you, you can like try and work your way down. But I've also like, yeah, I, I kind of agree that in general, you want to get lower, but it can be a good, a good stopgap to go for a, a higher shoe while you're working, while you're trying to like stretch out that posterior chain a little bit. I've had athletes that were having like, a lot of injury and it's like, okay, well, you know, you're at you're at like eight or something. Let's go, let's go to 12 for a few months while we're trying to stretch out that posterior chain and then try and go back down. So I think going up can be a, a small way to like help prevent injury for a short amount of time while you're working on something. But I do kind of agree that in general, we want to get a little bit lower in that, like, you know, whatever, maybe five to 10 is kind of like the, what's seen as maybe a comfortable range at the moment. Cool. Dodgeball. Dodgeball. Uh, all right. So I'm going to stop us there. We we've been, we've been rapid fighting for a long time. We've got a few more questions, but we'll, we'll hang on to these and, you know, let us know on any of the social medias or on our, on Podbean if you like kind of the shorter rapid fire style, or if you like kind of our little, our long form better, and we can, we can definitely do more of this. I had fun throwing dodgeballs. Hopefully you guys did too. And yeah. So let us know if you found this entertaining. Thanks guys. Super fun. It's uh, it's always good to just go through a bunch of different questions and hopefully people can pull little tidbits to add to their bucket of, you know, toolbox to, to make themselves better. Even if they just got one thing out of, you know, all, all of those little questions to, to make their training a little easier and a little better than that's, that's cool stuff. So fun to, fun to chat. I'm glad you guys had me on too, as always. And I wasn't kidding. I've won a lot of dodgeball games in my life. I want you all to know that I'm finishing the episode by just bragging over nothing from when I was 12. All right. I'm out. Nice. <laughs> Bye Cheers. guys.